Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We are six days out from Election Day, although every day is Election Day uh, <laughs> during during this cycle. Uh, so joining us to talk about all of this with less than a week to go is our colleague, Bill Crystal. Bill, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Good to be with you, Charlie. I can't believe it's six days. When did you start? I remember we talked and you started the countdown on your newsletter. Well, that was like it's 70 days or 60 it a, days. It was, a, it was around then. It seemed like a long time, long time to go. It's like, I know, but it seems like it was three years ago, right? Everything. You, you know how old I am? I remember when we were all um, tweeting about Jeffrey Tubin and his Zoom meeting. <laughs> I mean, the that's the that's the weird thing about about our time cycle okay so i i want to start off with karma uh, my, my newsletter headline today is trump's karmic fiasco and basically i think in with a with a week to go here you know trump's campaign has become this karmic fiasco because you know the pandemic that he ignored and downplayed is returning to destroy his presidency. And you had a really remarkable moment, I thought, in my home state of Wisconsin yesterday. He's He has another one of his rallies in western Wisconsin. And let's just play this soundbite. And you know, with the fake news, everything is COVID. COVID, COVID, COVID. I had it. Here I am, right? I had it. First lady had it. Barron had it, but Barron had it for about 12 seconds. Young, young, that immune system, young. No, it's uh, COVID. You turn on the news. COVID, COVID. You know when they're going to stop talking about it so much? November 4th. You're right. November 4th. Oh, it's a whole crazy thing. I mean, it's too complicated to explain. These people are very corrupt, very dishonest, but they got a lot of problems. On November 4th, you'll hear we're doing extremely well. And uh, you'll see, you'll see, you know, they used to always say that Europe. So, Bill, um, this is breathtaking because here in Wisconsin, yesterday was the day we were hammered. We, we hit record numbers. I mean, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel headline, it's a nightmare scenario. Wisconsin reports more than 5,200 cases in one day, 64 deaths. This is no longer a slow motion disaster. This is a disaster in warp speed. And here is the president mocking the, the severity of COVID on the day in which every news broadcast, every newspaper, every headline is about, hey, this is Wisconsin's moment. We are, you know, this is this this is deadly. I, in, in terms of tone deafness, it, it's almost off the scale. I mean, I do wonder whether the actual rallies are now hurting Trump, and that is marginally, obviously. <clears throat> His fans like seeing him on the road, I suppose. Maybe that helps a few of them turn out, and uh, people like, me don't think you should be doing this and and find it offensive as you just said toned not only uh, tone deaf but as, as you said offensive and really almost disgusting dangerous I mean, huh? people are dying there's a real surge i've talked per privately just as it happens to a couple of public health professionals in the last week or so uh, for various random reasons but i mean i would say they're what they say privately is consistent with what they say publicly. They're not dishonest people, but they're a little more alarmed, I would say, than they feel like in public they need to be, you know, measured and so forth. But I mean, going into the winter with a never having really suppressed it, unlike in Europe where they're getting a surge, but it's it's bad actually, but it's from very low levels. So and and Europe is also locking down selectively cities and, and, and counties and states, the equivalent, and, and for two, three weeks to kind of get it back under control. We're, of course, not really doing that or doing it in a very haphazard way. So 
they think we're going to have a bad winter. I mean, it is a lie. I just want to say it is false that things are going to be better on November 4th or on December 4th. It's just false. And for Trump to say it and therefore encourage people to be you know, negligent about wearing masks and not serious about uh, not taking the thing seriously uh, is is just terrible. I mean, it makes it hard for school systems to plan responsibly because you do want things to reopen to the degree they can, but they can only do that with testing. And then we get back into the whole thing, the incredible failures of policy. But this level of sort of cavalier uh, negligence, uh, really almost criminal negligence, I would say, about the pandemic is terrible. I do think that people, especially in a state like Wisconsin, I'm curious whether how much, you know, it's interesting, there was a poll this morning that no one believes, the ABC Washington Post poll. Yeah, 17 points. 17 points, uh, Trump deficit. But I do wonder if in a state like Wisconsin, which is getting hit harder than some of the other states, uh, it it wouldn't surprise me that much if the number against Trump opened up a little bit here in the last week or two, more than in a Michigan or Pennsylvania, Texas, which is pretty clearly pretty close and in play is having a terrible surge. El Paso is talking about having to medevac uh, patients, you know, elsewhere was the hospital ICUs are full. Um, anyway, I don't know. How, I don't know what it feels like. I mean, is it really penetrating on the, you know, to people there that this thing is really bad? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it is. And, and of course, it, you know, it doesn't affect the, the Trump hardcore base, but uh, that base is not big enough in Wisconsin. And I, and I want to talk about that in just a second. No, there's no question about it that the, the thing that's driving the story in Wisconsin right now is the pandemic. And I think the same thing's happening in Michigan and, uh, in, 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 and in Pennsylvania. So you raise the possibility whether or not these rallies are actually hurting him. And I think that's something to keep an eye on, you know, in terms of the, of the, of the karma, because those were kind of his magic sauce four years ago, right? He, this is his comfort zone to hold these rallies. And yet everywhere he goes now, instead of getting positive publicity, he gets negative publicity because of the fiasco that it's causing, including what happened in Omaha last night, where they stranded all of these people out in the cold without buses. I mean, these, these things are they, they it's like the magic dust has gone. But I do think that they they are backfiring. So it is kind of interesting watching people go, well, why is Joe Biden not out there holding, you know, rallies and campaigning harder? Actually, by just letting Donald Trump have a stage to himself right now, maybe the the best political strategy. You know what I mean? I mean, every yeah. time Donald Trump goes out there, it's like as long as the focus is on Trump and this election is a referendum on Trump, that's 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 a that's a good scenario for Joe Biden. The Trump campaign retweeted two photos, I think I saw this morning. One is of Trump speaking to a packed rally, and the other is of Biden speaking to socially distanced people. I mean, it's a few dozen people, it looks like, somewhere. I'm not even sure what state it was in. Uh, you know, and giving them, obviously not doing a packed rally. And, and the Trump people think that's just an incredible indictment, I suppose, or, or uh, Biden. They ridicule him. They literally ridicule, or ridicule, think about it for a minute. It's obviously yeah. not like the Democratic Party in these states couldn't get a few thousand people, you know, to come someplace. But uh, they have many, many times. Uh, but um, it, they think it's an indictment of Biden that he's being cautious and careful and respectful of his voters by not actually telling them to come mix and mingle. And there is some empirical evidence. It's not that, you know, we don't know how how much any particular rally is a super spreader. That depends on the accident of who's there and what happens there. But but uh, there is some evidence that these rallies are not helping, certainly. So um, anyway, it is, I, I do think, it's sort of a lot. Trump sort of has the right instinct, which is he sort of understands COVID has been very, his handling of it has been so damaging to him that he wants to dismiss it. And I guess maybe if you're sort of already on board, 
you kind of lap that up. I, I, I think maybe you do lap that. When he says COVID, 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 that's all they want to talk about. Well, people are tired of it. People would like to get beyond it. Sure. If you want to engage in wishful thinking and want to believe Trump, you'll believe that it will be over November 4th. I'm a little spooked by the number of people I personally have, and uh, it's me and close family members, have run into, and these are not really friends, but you know, people in the, run into in the grocery store and stuff, and so far as one goes to those anymore, um, you know, casually. And, and if you're inclined to be for Trump, you're also inclined to uh, tell yourself exactly what Trump said yesterday, that it's going to be, uh, this is a going to be over, so to speak. This is being wildly exaggerated. It's going to be over on November 4th. And that's where the damage is done, is that's going to affect people's behavior. It is. So it will get worse. And and that's that's where I, I think when you listen to him, you realize, okay, he's not going to take the steps that is that is going to prevent this. So, and I he's mean, president of the United States yeah, from November 4th right. to January 20th. And I'm pretty alarmed thinking about that interregnum. I mean, how much irresponsibility will we have? How much failure to come to grips with with the pandemic that could be getting worse and worse? And, you know, what's he going to be doing? And as a little rest of the government could try to do things, but as we've seen, it's hard to do it if the president doesn't want to sign off on it or, or coordinate the effort. So the, the, the you, you mentioned the ABC Washington Post poll, which shows him up, um, sorry, shows Biden up by 17 points in Wisconsin, which I think most people, at least for now, think of as an outlier, uh, also shows him with uh, Biden with a comfortable lead in Michigan. Oh, they called it it's a, it's a six, seven point lead, which they call slim, which I suppose is slim in comparison to 17 points. We're going to get a better picture of Wisconsin later today. Probably by the time people are listening to this podcast, we will have gotten the results of the Marquette University law. Law poll, which is considered the most credible poll here in Wisconsin. And that poll has shown no movement whatsoever. It's been four points, four points, five points, five points. I mean, no, no tightening, no broadening, nothing. So um, if it's anything different than, say, five points, it's an indication of, you know, some some dramatic move. But I, I think just, I'm just want to throw out one one factoid about Wisconsin that I'm slightly obsessed with. And I know that Tim Alberta mentions it in Politico magazine as well. You know, Trump won Wisconsin four years ago, but he got less. He got fewer votes than Mitt Romney got four years earlier. Mitt Romney lost Wisconsin by seven percentage points in 2012, but he got more votes than Donald Trump got in 2016. So what happened in 2016 was an abnormally low turnout by Wisconsin standards. It was about 2.8 million. Based on the early voting and the absentee ballots that are coming in, I think it's possible that we're going to see something like 3.3 million votes. That's that's a that's a half million more votes this time than last time. And I think that a lot of those are going to be Democratic votes. And generally, the pattern has been in the past that big turnout elections like that favor Democrats in Wisconsin. The lower turnout elections, the off-year elections tend to favor Republicans. So that's one of the dynamics. What? How does it change uh, the outcome when the electorate expands that dramatically. Uh, and, and yeah, your numbers are, 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 you know, kind of your guesstimate, yeah. right? That's about a 20% increase in turnout. It's huge. In 2016, I, nationally, it looks like uh, people, you know, start, this is an imprecise science at least, but I think the overall national turnout was 139 million something presidential mm -hmm. vote in 2016. It looks like we may go above 150. I kind of wonder if we'll get close to 160, but yeah. you know, I think 153 or four would be a 10% increase in turnout. Uh, but I tend to agree. There could be some Trump voters, of course, turning out in that number. There will be some. Uh, but I've got to think 
that advance that higher turnout tilts towards Biden, and there's some evidence that there's some, that the turnout has increased among younger people, which is interesting. I was talking to a Democrat about uh, six months ago, an uh, operative, you know, pretty savvy type, kind of very worried. This is after the pandemic, mm-hmm. and they've t- counted a lot um, on turning out on on human to human canvassing, both in inner cities where people, you know, aren't, don't, right. aren't wealthy. They don't have necessarily all the phones and they're checking their, their text messages all the time. And, and they really have turned out, especially in the African-American community, people get turned out neighbor to neighbor, churches on Sunday, uh, come door to door. They figured they couldn't do that. And they haven't done much of that in the pandemic. And then on college campuses at the University of Wisconsin, let's say, and yeah. a huge liberal vote there and a Democratic vote in Madison, obviously, you know, you've seen it. They set up a million tables and they register everyone and they, you know, they, 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 it's very easy if, pretty easy if everyone's in one place to get them to vote. And they were very worried that these people will be dispersed doing virtual learning and uh, much harder to get to them. Now, it seems like they've done a good job, I've got to say, on, you know, texting and emailing and phone calling and, you know, compensating for the pandemic. I think that's one of the underreported stories. If it turns out to be a pretty good year uh, for the Democrats and for Biden, they seem to have adjusted pretty well to the pandemic when they were worried because they thought, look, the Trump people are going to vote. And the Trump people, you know, you're a 68 year old in Western Wisconsin or Southern Wisconsin, you drive to the polls, you vote. It's, you know, if this pandemic, if this pandemic, you wear a mask, but hopefully, but, uh, you know, you're not dependent on as much as a 23 year old at, uh, in Madison or a 28 year old in Milwaukee and sort of having someone remind you to vote, help you to vote, maybe drive you to the polls even, and, um, tell you, you know, make sure you fill out the form correctly if you're filling out an absentee. And, but it seems like the Democrats have done a pretty good job on the ground. It's hard to know right now, but it, 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 it is, it is, it is hard to know because there is no ground game, but I will tell you this, and this is a random anecdote. This is not data. This is not anything, but, um, I get every day, I get, I get multiple, uh, these sort of blast text messages, you know, threatening me from the Republicans, like you must vote, you know, don't you want to keep America great again? You know, turn in your ballot. Look, I've already voted. I've already turned in my ballot, but these, these blasts come out. Last night, while I was trying to disconnect, I, I, I get a text saying, hi, this is Dan. I'm a volunteer here in Wisconsin, and I want to let you know you know, what your options are for early voting. Is this Charles? Hmm. And I wrote back, and I said, seriously? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, it's like, are you a real person talking to me as a real person? Is there a kid? That, I mean, really? Is there a Dan? Are you really Dan? Are you really writing to me? <laughs> and it turned out the answer is yes, that there was some guy in northern Wisconsin who was texting individual people, which I thought was, I don't know whether that's the most efficient way of doing it, but it was striking. So, Bill, you yeah, have a friend of mine in Florida. Similarly, he had re-registered as a Democrat to vote in the primary. He's a Republican for Biden. So that was, you know, in the Florida primary in March. And now he's, so it's a Dem- he's registered as a Democrat. He's voted early already, but he's been struck by how many texts and emails he's gotten from, you know, the Florida Democratic Party. And also similarly, some of them random and, you know, obviously just uh, mass emails. But he said one or two actual, he got back, you know, he responded to a couple and it was similar that there were actual humans at the other end who had been pretty well trained and how to have a conversation. So it didn't matter in his case, but uh, with a with an undecided voter. So that maybe that's, maybe they've done a good job. It, well, also some other weird things, and this, this, may, this may seem kind of random here, but I, I can't remember a time when the Democrats had such a huge advantage in terms of money. Yeah. And you really feel that you feel it in your mailbox. You see it on television, the radio ads. 
And it is interesting how much money is being put into state legislative races here. Um, there's no chance for Democrats to flip the the legislature. I mean, the gerrymandering is so intense, they're not even going to come close. But there are reports that they are dumping. And again, people need to understand that Wisconsin assembly races are much, much, much lower profile than maybe in some other places. But they're targeting the uh, sitting speaker of the state assembly. And the most recent report is they're prepared to dump, Democratic groups are prepared to dump $800,000 into this race. Well, I would say at crazy. the level, the, the, <laughs> I asked uh, someone who's a political pro, you know, what does the disparity of spending matter? I mean, just generally, my experience has been, if you're losing, you're losing, you can outspend people all you want, people don't want to vote right. for you, they don't want to vote for you, and vice versa. But he made a good point. He said, look, if you're ahead five, six points, and you can outspend your opponent three to one, it's not that you're going to convert necessarily go up to seven, eight, nine points, but you probably, if there's a little natural erosion happening, you can probably halt it or slow it. So you go from six to five instead of six to three, you know, which I think is a good way of thinking about it. If you're sort of inclined to be for Biden, sort of doubtful about Trump, and you get just pretty good ads, you know, day after day on TV and some digital stuff, uh, it probably makes you more inclined to stay where you are rather than switch back. So I think that is probably so. helping the Democrats some. So here's an analogy that I was playing with may, may not be good. And looking at some of these really, really close polls in some of the swing states, and I'm thinking of Georgia right now, where it's a, to use the cliche, it, it's a jump ball in, in some of these states. So let's just assume that that it's it's tied in all of these states and it's a jump ball. Which way is the wind blowing right now? I, I was doing a radio show earlier this morning and I was listening to the broadcast and every single story was about the coronavirus, the stock market falling, the lack of any sort of stimulus aid. Um, we're not talking about Bobolinsky or anything like that. So if you're if you're Trump, you know, all of the dynamics of the race seem to be blowing in the in, you know, against you in the final days of the campaign. Really the opposite of 2016. Remember, everything broke for Trump in the final weeks of the campaign. We may not have realized it at the time, but in right. retrospect, this feels completely different, especially you and I are talking right now the, with the Dow Jones is down 600 points. You know, every front page of every newspaper in the country is about the surge of the, the of the coronavirus. His last minute October surprise has completely fizzled and he's out of money. Yeah, I think the <laughs> only thing cutting against that, I, I would say the main thing is a little bit normally for an incumbent. If you look at some of these races, like when we were down in 92, the George H.W. Bush campaign, another era, obviously, mm -hmm. we were down maybe seven, eight, nine, and we closed it to end up five and a half. I mean, there's a little bit of a devil you know and better than the devil you know. Coming home. Coming home, so to speak. So, But again, that's usually a point or two. That's not five points or eight points, you know. Okay, so you had a piece in in the Bulwark uh, yesterday, the three possible outcomes, um, and and I, and I love this because you point out historically in the last century three presidents have lost re-election bids for a second term. We realize that only only three: Herbert Hoover, thirty two; Jimmy Carter, nineteen eighty; George H. W. Bush in ninety two, and they all had a little different feel, but you know, distinctive after effects. So let's go through all of this because you, you say, you know, it seems likely that Trump is going to follow these, you know, one term president's footsteps. So you sort of historically go back and, and look at the dynamics. So let's do it the way you did it in the article, um, going in backwards order, 1992 retirement. As you point out, George H.W. Bush lost by 5.6 percentage points to Clinton. It was a defeat. It wasn't a rout. 
but it was it was it was a de- it was a defeat. Yeah, it sure was. I mean, so the broader point here is that you know, by, by a little better than two to one, Americans tend to reelect presidents when they've yeah. elected once. I put aside the sort of appointed presidents, the Fords, and then the president mm-hmm. who stepped down, like Johnson. So you could make, you could complicate this, but basically that's correct. And of course, the last three elections, presidents of last three cycles, presidents of one reelection, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. So the notion that Trump, if he loses, it's a little bit unusual, and there are only three of them in the last century. And they do tend to signify a change in our politics because, again, the default is kind of keep the guy there if he's doing an adequate job. 92, we lost. Um, Republicans, uh, the Senate stayed the same in, in, in overall numbers. And I think Republicans picked up a few House seats because of reinforcement. Which, so, which I'd forgotten, by the way. Yeah, that was a kind of actually year. I mean, and it was, there were all those pro voters who voted Republican down yeah. ballot. So it's a little more complicated if you get into the yeah. news. But basically, I mean, people were tired, 12 years of Reagan, Bush, the Cold War had ended. That was a big deal. And people thought, mm-hmm. okay, let's get a young guy in there who can focus more on education and health care and so forth. Clinton was a moderate Democrat. But at the end of the day, it was an important election in some ways, but it didn't, uh, it wasn't a repudiation of, of everything Reagan had done. It didn't set the Democrats off into permanent majority status. They probably lost Congress for the first time in 40 years, two years later. We then had very competitive races, obviously, for the next 20 years, really, in a lot of uh, cases. But um, or till today, but so it was an important election in that it was you could say it began a certain era, but it wasn't uh, you know a, a realigning election, a right. transformative election, an ideologically hugely significant election. So that's kind of if you lose, and so my analogy would be if Trump loses by five or six points, if Republicans hold the Senate, I think the Senate here is now very that becomes mm-hmm. more important. Very. It will, from, it will not mean a repudiation, a full repudiation of Trump, and certainly not of Trumpism. It'll just be he lost in a, a re-election because of COVID and the recession, I suppose. But, you know, plenty of people will say, but the message was basically right. A better messenger with the same message and better circumstances four years from now could do fine. I think the amount of rethinking is kind of limited if you lose that kind of race. Well, and as you point out, you know, that, that, that not only was it not a down-ballot route, but Republicans two years later took over both houses of Congress in 1994 and held them for the rest of the decade. So you know it was it was obviously not a terrible right. So um, they retired. They not, not a early retired George yeah. W. Bush, uh, and uh, that was that was unfortunate for some of us at the time. But it's very different from a kind of real okay sort of a, go in a different direction. Pretty gentle reelection defeat. Yes. Okay. So 1980 rejection. So Carter loses by almost 10 points. Uh, they lose 12 Senate seats. Republicans win the Senate for the first time in a quarter century. And Reagan, obviously, a pretty stark ideological difference uh, from Carter and uh, you know, leads to the Reagan Revolution, as it's called, and big changes in domestic policy or tax policy, at least, and in foreign policy and all kinds of consequences. And of course, Reagan wins in 84 and then Bush wins in 88. So a kind of more significant uh, inflection point, more significant fork in the road for American politics. I'd say the analogy for this year would be if Trump lost by eight, let's say, or, or, or 10, like Reagan, you know, Reagan did eight, nine. Uh, and if Republicans lose the Senate, you could imagine uh, Democrats being in pretty good shape for a little while, A, and B, uh, Republicans doing more rethinking. I mean, it's a lot, Democrats didn't do as much rethinking as one would have thought they would have done in the early mid 80s. They finally got around to it with Clinton. But I do think if, if, if Trump, lo- if they lose the, the Senate, the chance of at least some less Trumpy Republicans being more prominent in the next two, four years 
is is much higher. The sense of you know, gee, we're just going to keep losing unless we re, unless we think uh, unless we do things differently. So I think that's the kind of yeah, that's the sort of middle case. And right now, probably the case that's most consistent with with most of the polls. Yeah, as you point out, it was not in the grand scheme of things either a realigning election or a transformative one. Its after effects, which were significant, were measured in decades rather than generations. Um, which I thought was an interesting point because I do, you know, I think we're, we're used to thinking of uh, 1980s being kind of transformational, but not compared to 1932. So 1992 is retirement. 1980 is rejection. 1932 was, this was, this was epic. This was the repudiation. Herbert Hoover loses to FDR by 17.7%. Wow. And uh, you know, after Republicans had won three elections in a row, obviously in the twenties, yeah. and um, and they lose, uh, I don't know, a dozen Senate seats, ninety-seven <laughs> House seats, kind of a different, different era then, where the national swings were more pronounced and, and et cetera. But um, so that's kind of amazing. And obviously, we get the New Deal, we get a million things that happen in the next uh, decade, in the next three, four, five decades. But basically, the New Deal era lasts, you know, through the Great Society. You really, yeah, like, you ever think of it this way: Eisenhower, who's a huge war hero, is the only Republican to win the presidency between 1928 and 1968. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's a Democratic era. The Republicans even it up in Congress, some of the 50s and stuff, but still we get the New Deal and then the Great Society, civil rights, all kinds of things. A big, big, uh, you know, every historian who writes about American political history has the 32 electors, one of the three or four biggest. So uh, now that really would, I think that that would require that that Wisconsin poll this morning be not totally an outlier, that we get to a 11 or 12 point maybe Trump defeat, which wouldn't be you know totally out of the question. There are mm. some special polls that are 10 or 11 now. It would, I think, require that they lose more than the Senate by more than just a seat or two. For me, the big the, the sort of symbol of this would be Texas. I mean, I do feel that if the Republicans lost, not just Florida, which I think they would do in the second scenario, the uh, in-between, you know, 1980 scenario, but in the, if they lose Florida and Texas, I do think at that point, every intelligent- Oh my gosh, yeah. Thinks, well, what are we doing here? We've lost California, obviously. We'll, we'll always lose New York and Illinois. Now we're losing Florida and Texas. Like, do we have any states that are of any size that are going to ever be for us again? And, and, and the demographics going in the wrong direction. So- I think, um, you know, that would be a, that would be, and I don't know if that's, it's not likely, it's possible, I would say, what the rejection would look like. And with, with Hoover, I went back and quickly skimmed the history, and I don't really know it that well. I, mean, I don't know, they, it took the Republican Party a little while to move beyond Hoover, and then, of course, World War II happens, so it's a little hard to, to, to kind of mm-hmm. figure, you know, you can't be too wed to these analogies and historical examples. But at the end of the day, no one after 1936, certainly, or even in 36, proposed repealing the biggest parts of the New Deal. And and it, so we were off on a different path, for better and worse, you know, as a country. So, and uh, I, I kind of feel that, so that would be, I think, a case where you could imagine huge shakeups and debates in the Republican Party. Hard to know where the Democrats go with that size victory. It might encourage some of the more progressive Democrats, which wouldn't be great from my point of view. But so I think that that just is more of a shakeup in our politics. And and yes, and that's not just a repudiation of, oh, Donald Trump mishandled a couple of things or was foolish to keep on having rallies. That's really, I think that makes it harder for Trumpists to say, well, the idea was pretty good. Of Trump, right. It just wasn't executed very well. Right. And, and and I think this is the point that we we really are getting at is what will it take to 
uh, what will it take to get rid of Trumpism? What what will be the what what will be the equivalent of an electoral exorcism? So there are the three you laid out very clearly three alternative you know headlines. Number one, the minimal one: Trump loses presidency as Midwest flips, but the GOP holds the Senate. Probably not transformational. Not uh, or number two: Trump defeated by big margin. Election called early as Florida and North Carolina go to Biden. Uh, go to Biden. Democrats win Senate. And then finally, the one you just laid out here, a double digits popular vote route extends to victory in Texas. Democrats control Senate easily. Places like Georgia, you know, have flipped. And you just, you just get a sense that, that, I mean, that's like the this demographic freight train just rolling over the, the, the party. So, you know, yeah, each one of those would have different consequences. I think it's going to be very difficult to, to shake loose of, of, of Trumpism. It's just, it feels... Like the, the, you know, after four years, I mean, I'll be honest with you, the transformation of the Republican Party and the conservative movement has been way worse in just four years than I was expecting. If it had been eight years, I think it would have been utterly irrecoverable. But I think it's going to be really, really hard, given the way that the entire infrastructure of the conservative movement has bought into Donald Trump for them to make a pivot, even, I mean, barring the last case scenario, unless it's an absolute blowout, they'll find a way to rationalize. I'm, I mean, you're reading the same things I'm reading. It is fascinating to me, that, you know, watching some of the former, you know, never Trumpers, the anti anti Trumpers coming up with elaborate rationalizations already beginning to pivot. Not, and none of the pivots are, wow, we made a terrible mistake with Donald Trump. You're not seeing it in National Review. You're not seeing it in the Washington Examiner. You're not hearing it from people like Ben Shapiro. They're all doubling down on it. So yeah, I, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not hearing the regrets and the confessions yet. Yeah, no, I suppose the counter-argument would be, you know, you never hear them ahead of time and it, it sort of takes a while for things to sink in. But I, I tend to agree with you in the sense that, and look, if you think of my 1980 sort of middle with pretty big repudiation, uh, pretty big rejection uh, analogy, the Democrats didn't rethink that much. It was sort of Tip O'Neill's party. They nominated Carter's vice president four years later, Gary Hart, I mean, who we now think of in other contexts, but you know, was actually a serious politician who said, we got to rethink things. I'm a new Democrat. Challenged Mondale in 84 and you know, ran a good campaign for a while, but got ended up falling short. Then they nominated Dukakis in 88. It really took a decade for them to really rethink. And that's, of course, very different from Trump in the sense that that's just being stuck in a kind of conventional liberal mindset of the past. It wasn't that they were terrible people or that they were lying systematically to the American public or whatever. They were just, you know, Walter Mondale was just not the right person for to defeat Ronald Reagan. Maybe you couldn't have done that anyway. Mm -hmm. of course. But so I, I, I very much, I, I tend to agree with you, I think. And I do think also, and this is something you saw very early and have written about, uh, both the transformation of the conservative movement and the Republican party and the degree to which those seeds were there before I had a long talk with an economist, uh, reported the other day, and I tried to emphasize to him that he needed to adopt your formulation of the recessive gene, <laughs> you credit, and give you credit for it too, you know, that I mean, that was, it was recessive, which we shouldn't forget. I think people deserve some credit for keeping it recessive. Uh, we fought Pat Buchanan, we fought Ron Paul and so forth. But on the other hand, it was there and it really has flowered, I don't know, to mix metaphors here, uh, burst forth in a very big way. And for me, that is the story. I mean, I can't, yeah. I've said it a few times, but I, I think it just 
Trump, a Democrat can win a multi-candidate primary. It, it, we were surprised when it happened and, uh, and disappointed. And you fought very hard against it in Wisconsin, which mm-hmm. is one of the states he didn't win. But still, you know, it can happen, right? A Democrat can win a general election in a two-party system where the other candidate's unpopular and and he gets some breaks in the last couple of weeks, as we were saying earlier with Jim Comey. But I would have said, I really, even with my, you know, disappointment and annoyance at the party and everyone accommodating in November, December of 2016, I think I still would have thought that, yeah, look, Republican elected officials who've been there before Trump, they're not going to simply go along with it. Right. Conservative elites, donors, intellectual elites, Wall Street Journal editorial page, National Review, which hosted the Never Trump Symposium, uh, they're not going to simply justify and rationalize everything. There, I mean, that for me is the bigger story because it, it does therefore entrench Trumpism. I was trying to think, I, I don't know enough, you know, sort of European history and other nations, other parts of the world. I was trying to think, to, said to someone, you know, do the thought experiment. What if Trump, you know, they go along with some things they agree with, the judges, the taxes, but they they call him out on other things. They rebuke him in certain ways. They chasten him. They don't just rubber stamp everything. What does that look like? And, and the person I was talking to said, I don't know, would that be maybe like, Berlusconi in Italy. And again, I don't really know him mm-hmm. well at all, but what has the impression that a kind of wacky sort of demagogic guy got elected, I think maybe twice even in Italy, but he kind of did his thing and pranced around and, you know, whatever as president and the system for better or worse, it's Italy, but I mean, you know, kind of chugged along and it didn't really change, you know, people weren't, mm-hmm. it wasn't Berlusconiism, you know, I mean, Trump could have been a little bit that way, I think. But but the so it's the rationalization and the enabling that's in a way the more potent story the more I agree story I'd almost say than the fact that by accident we elected you know our forty fifth president was is is not someone who's fit for office that's not a little thing but by itself it needn't have been as decisive as it may well have been for the country for the conservative movement for the Republican Party but you were early on this and. I love when you get attacked. Uh, didn't this happen kind of recently? For you know, Charlie, no one's willing to acknowledge their mistakes. It's like you wrote a whole book saying that we were not full, as aware. Oh, yeah, that was there was there was Car- Carlos Lozado and he in the uh, who's you know, written a book about about all of this and, and he keeps arguing that if it was not for Trump, nobody would have ever you know asked these questions. Well, yeah, some of us did. You know, I, I agree with you completely on, on all of this. You know, Donald Trump is exactly who we said he was going to be. I, I don't know how anyone thought that he was going to be different than all of this. So you know, he is being himself. It, it is this transformation of the of the rest of the Republican Party, you know, their willingness to go along with it. And I, I, I can I could understand the the transactional nature of some of it where they would say, OK, we'll deal with you so we get the tax cuts. But it has been the support of everything else, the willingness to step out. You know, it's one thing for, say, a Ron Johnson to say, I want to cut taxes. OK, we get that. That's what, you know, you you, you run on. But do you have to then be, you know, become a fluffer? Do you, you have to become somebody who is, you know, carrying his water, you know, even at his absolute worst? And there's one other point that you have made, you know, m- many times. It's also possible to say, it is possible, and just people bear with me here, that, that okay, Trump was not as bad if you're a conservative. Trump, Trump actually governed as a conservative, gave me a lot of things that I actually like. Um, I like the judges, I like the regulation, I like the taxes and everything. But um, even though I can defend many of those things, I am not willing to give him another four years. So it's one thing to defend him against all of his critics. It's another thing to say, yes, 
I want to extend this for another half decade. And that's kind of breathtaking when you think about it, because there's no illusions about who he is, how he governs, or what an absolute catastrophe a second term would be. And yet watching conservatives and Republicans being, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with giving him the kind of power um, that, uh, you know, giving this man, you know, the, the power to control the FBI, you know, fire the FBI director and control the intelligence agencies and have uh, access to the nuclear button for another 48 months. Absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, if you were, uh, and you are, and I am too, but if you, if one were really, a, you know, pro-life conservatives, extremely concerned about the courts, I think exaggerating how much good or harm the courts can do, but let's just leave that aside. I'm thinking that's just the most fundamental thing, and maybe one or two other issues like that. Uh, you know, I respect that. You support all the, one would have been mm -hmm. supported those judicial nominees. One would be very pleased by that. One would give Trump more credit than I would give him in the whole scheme of things for that. Fine. But then, you know what? They... Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. She was sworn in. She's on the court. She's not going anywhere. And then you could say, I would think, okay, you know what? It was. I don't regret supporting him in 2016. I don't regret having stayed in support of him for quite a long time here because we got a lot that I truly, truly, truly care about. But I totally agree with you to then not be willing to say another four years <clears throat> really is unacceptable. I mean, that is striking. Now, I would say personally, I've now talked to two people I don't think this is a big sliver of the population. These are the people who, you know, in intellectual conservative circles in Washington and New mm -hmm. York and so forth, who were sort of on the bubble about voting for him again. They deeply torn for various reasons, probably weren't going to vote for him, maybe couldn't vote for Biden. And I would say for them, the actual confirmation of Justice Barrett has uh, freed them up not to vote for him. They don't feel much pressure now. They feel like, you know what? I took a lot of grief from people like me and Charlie, the two of us. Uh, my friend said, you know, for, for, for these last four years, I feel like it was worth it. You don't, fine. That's the difference. But I, I, now I don't have to vote for him. I don't know if that has any resonance in the, you know, in the population as a whole. It's a pretty complicated calculation. Pretty much you have to be kind of a conservative movement, you know, insider probably to think that way. But it was it was an interesting conversation. Well, I, I I do wonder just how how much the exhaustion factor. And I've said this before. I just the, the people if if you go into the voting booth, if people don't do that anymore, but think, do I really want to listen to this guy for another four years? Do I want to have to defend right. this for another four years? Do I, can I, can I take this for another four years? I just think that's going to be a factor. By the way, while you and I are speaking. The Cook, uh, the Cook report mm -hmm. just moved Texas's 38 electoral votes from lean Republican to toss up. Wow! Because they they're not uh, they're they're pretty solid people. So this is the full this is this is Amy Walter and company. And again, I don't think that it's going to happen. I'm I, I would not you know bet my life on it. Um, but. Um, uh, you, you know what? Uh, the, the, Texas is going to turn is going to turn blue at at some point. The question is whether it's this year or whether it's going to be next year or whether it's going to be the year after that. And that's something that Republicans are going to have to you know come to grips with. Okay, so I, I, I addressed this question yesterday, and we're sort of on the same theme here. You know, Ben Shapiro was very very solidly never Trump back in you know back in two thousand sixteen, and he's decided he's got a formula that he has in his head, which is. That yes, you know, uh, Trump. Trump is a is a Vesuvius of mendacity. He's he's a man of very very low character. But the damage that he has done by being a man of low character has already been done. 
So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you vote for him again, because all the damage has already been done. That is the new normal. I just think that that is so profoundly wrong that that every lesson of history tells you that that it can get worse. And with Donald Trump, there is no bottom. So in terms of rationalization, that just strikes me as the weirdest because I think a second term would be exponentially even worse than the first term. And I think we're already seeing that. He's not pretending to have an agenda. He's not pretending to have an answer for deficit and debt, uh, for you know turning the economy around. Um, in terms of immigration, more cruelty. You know, um, in in terms of uh, in terms of healthcare, he obviously has no policy whatsoever. He's going to fire uh, the defense secretary. He's probably going to fire the uh, the the FBI director. And now he's figured out that maybe he can use the Department of Justice as his own personal plaything. So this whole notion that it can't get worse strikes me as horribly naive. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. For me, that was always, you said this earlier, uh, the kind of the, the breaking point with people who, you know, were, it's one thing to have approved with much that he had some of what, or what he had done or much of what he had done. But to then say a second term, no problem, give it to him was always for me the kind of breaking point that I just couldn't stomach or couldn't, you know, even understand in a certain way. I thought they just, uh, they are now just in sort of being team players, tribalists and, and rationalizers and enablers. But now Trump is publicly basically said he's going to fire the FBI director and <laughs> secretary. I mean, now you really are getting, I mean, he's over the, a lot of the guardrails have gone down. We're not talking Jim Mattis and uh, even Don McGahn or, or uh, Jeff Sessions even uh, anymore. We're talking another level of, of kind of cooperation and capitulation really to, to, to the notion that they just work for Trump. They don't work for the U S government. They don't have loyalty to the laws and the constitution as well as to the president. Uh, but we'll be at another stage in three, six months if he gets reelected. And then four years in a bold and Trump, the Republican Party, there'll be no opposition because he would have been so dominant, of course. The Republicans would have held the Senate, I suppose, if Trump's reelected. And, and they'll just be, you know, they'll feel they, they, they tied themselves to him and they were vindicated. That's how they'll think about it. So I, I, I just can't, yeah, I, the, the, it's one thing to be, you know, pro Trump, I guess, and then you just, you're just pro Trump. It's another thing to have been anti Trump to see how bad he is in some way. <laughs> they used to see how bad he is in some ways. And then sort of just ignore what's happening in front of one's eyes, including in the COVID thing. I mean, he's literally telling us that if he's reelected, he's just we're doing we're just on to herd basically herd immunity and nothing. I mean, maybe CDC will be allowed to put out occasional reports telling people they should wear masks. He'll obviously the vaccine hunt will continue, hopefully, and hopefully successfully. But basically the notion that we'll get serious about testing so that we could reopen more schools and all that, the notion of any federal plan. Uh, all that just collapses. The notion, I would say, incidentally, protecting people's pre-existing conditions, which he seems to think he can do by saying it, collapses. I mean, just the degree to which we're in a total meltdown then after November 3rd, I, I don't see how people can then say, but, you know, the, the second term would be okay. Yeah. But, so one, one, one last point. You and I had a, a shared experience the other day. We were uh, you know, scheduled to be on an MSNBC program, and we were, at least for a portion of it, we were preempted by President, former President Obama's speech. And so you got to sit and listen to, to President Obama's speech. So I was listening to that, and I was thinking, you know, I don't remember Obama being this funny before. Now, maybe that's because, you know, we, we spent the Obama years on, on the other side. But then I see the New York Times basically saying that the guy's having an absolute blast, just dragging and ripping uh, Trump. But that was that was a surprisingly entertaining, but really effective speech. 
And if I'm Joe Biden, I'm letting I'm letting Barack Obama go out and give that speech as many times as possible. And I never want to follow that speech. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's good. I, I saw him for a minute. I don't watch much TV really, but, uh, but I, uh, for whatever reason, it was uh, Susan, Susan on. I think we were having sandwiches for lunch. And Obama spoke at midday yesterday in Orlando. Yeah. I don't know if you have to see a little bit of that. Maybe you were I, on I watched, I think, I watched right? that. Yeah. 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 That. Yeah. Mostly one sees these speeches when one's on and then there's, of course, you know, that you have to wait. And so you, you, you watch them as you're sitting at your, at your desk, looking at your screen anyway, and uh, with MSNBC or CNN on or whatever. And, um, Oh, if I think Fox even carried that speech, and it was effective, and he, you know, and and he feel it looks like he feels a little liberated, and not quite the way when you're president that you have to be. That was a different era, of course, when you're president, you have to be measured in your words, a little careful. Right, right. He wasn't always, but he was most of the time. But now he can be a little more free flowing. But it was effective. We both fell out there watching it for a few minutes and thought, you know, this is so. I don't know how much difference it makes. Sorry, gets again usually overrated. Maybe they turn out a few people, but you know, Orlando is a Democratic area, and uh, if he can show up there and remind people they have to vote uh, in as close, what could be a very close state like Florida, you know, that 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 makes a difference. So again, it's another advantage the Democrats have. They have good surrogates. Trump, who does Trump have campaigning for him? Well, now that's interesting because so Joe Biden has the best possible surrogate from his point of view with with Barack Obama. Who is the best surrogate for Donald Trump? And the answer is what? Don Jr. Eric. And I would say, incidentally, I mean, I haven't really looked into this, so I, I put, I'll put this out as a question, not a statement. So there are maybe in in the swing states. Let me just put it this way. Uh, there are elected Republicans, obviously. There's Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. There's someone like uh, Scott Walker, who was elected three times until mm-hmm. 2018. There's uh, in Pennsylvania, there's Pat Toomey. So Pennsylvania is probably the closest to those three upper Midwestern states. Um, has Pat Toomey done an event for Donald Trump? Has he actually bothered mm-hmm. to tell anyone who's voted for him? He's been on the ballot, what, statewide two or three times in Pennsylvania and got a lot of votes. Uh, to vote for Trump. And uh, even in Florida, where I think Scott's been a little more outspoken for Trump, Rubio, DeSantis, but I wouldn't say you, you get the sense that they're stumping feverishly around the state. I think they're showing up when Trump shows up and they're doing their duty, so to speak, as they see it. So it is kind of interesting how, yeah, even the, the, the they're all shamefully accommodating of Trump, and I don't give them any credit for being a little lazy and campaigning for him. But it is interesting that they don't want to simply be out there, you know, uh, uh, hammering away for him and going to any terrific trouble. It doesn't seem. Yeah, the the, the only ones that you hear you hear from are the the Republican senators who really don't think they have a choice. You know, the Kelly Lefflers of of the world or the Martha McSallies, who are basically setting themselves on fire to prove their 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 Trumpiness. And, and, and by the way, just sort of parenthetically, because Jim Swift and I were talking about this before we, we started the, the, the podcast, it's really interesting to me to watch in some of these states that we're now thinking of as possible bubble states, you know, flipping from red to blue, that one of the through lines has been the way that the Republican Party has made itself much more Trumpy and much more sort of fever swampy. We saw it in Arizona, which is about to flip blue. We're seeing it in Georgia, where there's this 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 fight to be, you know, who can embrace QAnon more closely. In Texas, they went and they got Alan West, who is, you know, kind of a whew, out there, um, you know, figure from a former congressman who's now their chairman. These things are repelling people. He, even here in Wisconsin, whatever you might think of Scott Walker, Scott Walker was, I think, kind of a guardrail to the crazies in the Republican Party. And with his departure, um, you're, you're seeing a lot of 
really bizarre stuff. It's hard for me to imagine that if Scott Walker was still the governor, that you would have the Republican Party in Waukesha County having a dinner at which Michelle Malkin is the keynote speaker and uh, leads a standing ovation for Kyle Rittenhouse's mom, Kyle Rittenhouse being the 17-year-old that killed two people in Kenosha. That that wouldn't be happening. But 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 since it is happening, I think this is one of the things that suburban voters, college-educated white voters, are looking at this going, you know, if this is what the Republican Party is, I'm out, I'm gone. So the Republican Party in these key states by moving, Virginia would be another example, you know, as they become crazier, they are repelling more and more voters. And I think that's going to be something that's going to become more and more obvious when we see the results of this election. And I suppose we we can close on this and then mm-hmm. get back to what we're talking about. How much does that persist going forward? I, I think it could persist going forward. So, and a lot will depend on Biden. I mean, that, that's the other great thing. We're all, we're all having these debates on future of the Republican Party and conservatism, which makes sense for us to have. But a lot depends on how Biden governs, obviously. And is he viewed as successful? Is he reasonably moderate? Does it look like a like a reasonable th- uh, governing party? I'd say in Virginia, I'm struck where, you know, that was this was a Republican state in terms of mm-hmm. the governors we usually elected and senators for that matter uh, until 10, 15 years ago. It started to slide Democratic and Obama carried it and stuff. But one reason why it's become solidly Democratic is and I say this as a conservative who doesn't agree with all the policies, you know, it's a pretty well-governed state. And the fact that we've had Democratic governors since what now, McAuliffe and now Northam, since 2013, whatever Northam's personal problems with the, the black mm-hmm. people and all that, they're not governing like crazy people. Businesses are not fleeing Virginia. You know, they're not raising taxes right and left. They're, you know, there are things they're doing that are, you know, bad, and, and I wish they wouldn't do it. I would probably be happier if there were one Republican House in the state legislature left to check them, but there's not because of the whole party's gone so insanely Trumpy, incidentally. But, um, but I mean, to the degree that Biden, let's say, governs, if I can put it this way, like a Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, and not like a far left, you know, Democrat, it will make it easier for people having deserted the, a Trumpy Republican Party once to decide, A, it still looks, it's still, that's, that's the party, you know, mm-hmm. and B, I can just desert it next time. So that's where, again, the size of the defeat and the reaction to the defeat and whether people, exp- that's why it's not enough, I think, though, to just quietly move on and sort of pretend that didn't happen. People need to say, to, to oh, reassure the voters you're talking about, yeah, that was, some of that was a mistake. I don't, we're not going in that direction in the future. Yeah, I think it's going to be, uh, this is going to leave an indelible mark for a very long time. And I know a lot of Republicans are going to want to move into the, hey, that didn't happen really fast, um, but I don't think it's going to work. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very, very much. I enjoyed the discussion, Charlie, as always. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again There are, believe it or not, just six days to go.